I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello folks, welcome to Wargaming Month here on The Napoleon Assist. A very quick reminder, smack the like button, remember to subscribe so you can find your way back, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll take you a few seconds of your time. It'll make a massive difference to me and my ability to reach a wider audience with the the details of the work of my fantastic guests. If you are willing to go just a tiny bit further and dig into your own pocket, and believe me, I completely understand if you're not up for that, you can do so in two ways. You can become a regular supporter via Patreon, different perks in each tier. Check the link in the description for more details on that. Or if a regular subscription isn't your thing, you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi. Again, the link is in the episode description. Whatever support you're able to offer, as you know, I am massively grateful and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist and the final instalment of Wargaming Month. We've had a heady mix of laughter, of serious contemplation, we've had anarchy, we've had moments of utter disbelief as we've looked at everything from board games to computer games to miniatures. And we're going to end with something that is sort of an offshoot, if you like, of the miniature genre. We are going to be talking about a brilliant new project that is creating what I am going to term the Great Waterloo Diorama. There are a few of them out there, but there is a brilliant new project involving Waterloo Uncovered that is seeking to build another one, which may well end up being the definitive article. Joining me to discuss this brilliant initiative are Peter Malloy, the Napoleonic commentator and researcher, treasurer of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity, and part of the Waterloo Uncovered team that is working on building this new Waterloo diorama. Peter, great to see you again. How are you doing, my friend? Hi, Zach. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. 
And we are also joined by James Cowan. James is a retired Major General with a particular interest in the Napoleonic Wars, and he has a deeply impressive CV. He runs the Halo Trust, which, for those of you who don't know, is a fantastic organisation which basically tries to clear up the detritus of war in order to make war zones safe for civilians. Things like clearing landmines, um, trying to help people effectively rebuild their lives and return to some sense of normality in the wake of conflict. So as you can imagine, he's a very busy individual with the horrific situation out in Ukraine at the moment. He's also trustee of Waterloo Uncovered and has been the driving force behind this new diorama. James, it's great to have you on. How are you doing? Hi, Zach. Nice to see you. Um, I'm, I'm really worried that because of Ukraine and Afghanistan, I haven't really paid enough attention to Waterloo recently. So you're going to ask me lots of questions and I'll probably have forgotten everything, but I'll do my best. Hey, we always say fake it till you make it. And that is definitely a theme on the Napoleon Assist. If you don't know the answer, we just try and drag up some information that feels like it's relevant. Um, and anything that's wrong just gets cut out in the edit. So I wouldn't worry. Um, I've made plenty of faux pas um, that are deeply embarrassing that have gone out on air. So nothing to worry about there at all. Let's start with the question that I've asked all of my guests over the course of this month, which is about the personal element. I'm curious about your roots into miniatures and perhaps wargaming more generally. I mean, James, you presumably have done a huge amount of wargaming over the course of your time as a soldier. What were your experiences of that? But also what about your involvement in this idea of miniatures as uh, something to kind of use as a recreation and something that's just plain enjoyable? Yeah, I've, I've actually never done any wargaming in my life, uh, unless you count Afghanistan as <laughs> that, which I don't. Um, so, no, I was a, a, a real soldier for 30 years, um, served in Northern Ireland, Germany, Africa, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I, I am a really keen military historian. My grandfather was a general as well. And, you know, he, he sort of kindled my passion for military history. Um, my, my family uh, are military in many ways, but actually um, the bit of my family that, that uh, know about Waterloo had nothing to do with the army at all. They, they, um, they were industrialists in Scotland and their, their mills were taken over by the government in 1810 uh, because the government was running out of space for prisoners, largely after Ciudad Rodrigo. And so the mills were taken over and 5,000 French prisoners were put up um, at, in, in their sort of factory complex at Pennycook, just outside Edinburgh. And um, Charles Cowan, who, who's my ancestor, was so appalled by their treatment that he set up a, a monument um, in the grounds, uh, which still stands to this day. And it's the only monument to foreign soldiers on British soil um, saying, all men are brethren. So it always struck me as um, a pretty amazing thing. And those prisoners who survived, but many died, left Edinburgh in 1814 and uh, marched down to Leith Docks and went home to France. And I presume, but I don't know, but many of them, I suppose, must have fought at Waterloo. And then his son um, went out to Waterloo in, in 1818, so not long after the battle. Uh, he witnessed a, a public execution, a guillotining in, uh, in Brussels. And then he walked, he walked all the way from Brussels down to Waterloo. He went to Hougoumont. He got a tour there from... Um, no less a person than, than uh, Lacoste, the, the uh, local peasant who'd been the guide for Napoleon on the day. And um, he, he then went up to La Belle Alliance and he sort of looked around the battlefield, found bits of detritus, buttons, bones, 
um, and it was all still pretty fresh at that point. Um, so uh, it was a pretty amazing account, which he, he uh, wrote into his memoirs in the 1870s. Well, that's, that's quite a connection, quite a family history there. And um, thank you for sharing that with us. Peter, what about your route in? Um, uh, um, uh, perhaps you're gonna wow us with a, a great ancestor that's, that's got a link? No, no, nothing, not, nothing at all as interesting as that. I mean, my, my, my first time visiting the battlefield was, was at the age of 11 back in 1999. I, I pestered my parents to make a stop off there in the course of a family trip. And it's, I suppose, kind of been part of life ever, ever since. It's, 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 it's been a recurring feature returning there year in, year out. Um, I was actually just, just back there for the first time uh, at the beginning of March. So it's, it's a place it's always lovely to, to reconnect with. In terms of the, the sort of miniature hobby side of things my my earliest exposure to that was was distinctly not historical in in that it was kind of a schoolyard craze for for games workshop and, and warhammer 40k and so on and um, back in the 90s there was there was a brief flurry of interest in this in collecting the different factions and so on um and that was probably my my earliest exposure to this concept of, of sitting down and painting model soldiers and model vehicles and so on and like all of those schoolyard phases it, it, it quickly moved on after a couple of months um but from that I, I i discovered that there were also historical manufacturers that you could buy napoleonic infantrymen or second world war paratroopers or what have you and, and i suppose i've never really looked back since that 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 hobby side of things has been part of life all the way through since then I like this we've got two different routes into this which i think is going to make for a really interesting discussion Let's dwell and dig a bit on the history of, of Waterloo dioramas specifically, not sort of dioramas generically, because there are a few of them out there, aren't there? Um, obviously, the National Army Museum has the cyborg model, which has its own layers of controversy due to you know, that question of are there or are there not enough Prussians on the battlefield and Wellington not being particularly happy uh, with the balance there. You also have that beautiful one at the Royal Green Jackets Museum in Winchester, which, if memory serves, is something like a one to nine scale in terms of men deployed on the battlefield. And it depicts multiple different moments across the battle. So it's not just a single moment, unlike the cyber model, which is set at a particular time. So why do you think there's been so much focus on Waterloo as a subject for a diorama? Is it that it's just more compact, that it's more famous, or is there something else about it? I think, I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, the first thing is it is quite compact. And um, Napoleonic battlefields, as you know, um, you know, some of them are absolutely enormous. Wagram or Borodino or Leipzig, uh, Dresden, any of the battles of 1813, you know, the big battles. And so there's, a, there's something about Waterloo that is really tight. And even some of the peninsula battlefields, I mean, you go to Salamanca, it actually spreads over a much larger area with many fewer troops. So um, I think that that side of it is appealing. And I think the second thing is, um, I, mean, I think people think of this age in popular terms as illiterate. It's not at all. It's actually really literate and in some ways more literate than, than succeeding periods, certainly probably more literate than the modern British Army. And the numbers of letters written by particularly British soldiers, is really startling. Of course, that has a downside because it has led to a, a slight bias to, towards the Anglophone. Um, but I think we'll come on to that in a minute, I'm sure, but, but that's been corrected in, in, in recent times. I think there's also um, something about the, the fact that this is the denouement of, 
this 20 year um, you know, world war, it's the final big battle. I think that is really important. And of course, it's, 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 it, it is not a purely British victory, but it is a British victory. The British win and it heralds an age of, of British um, supremacy within Europe. So, you know, it's not surprising, therefore, that the, the British want to celebrate it. Um, so I think for all those reasons, the fact that it's so well documented, and we'll come back to Sibbon, I'm sure, um, that's why it's been such a focus. Peter, what about your thoughts on this? What's your sense about the existing dioramas and their ability to engage as well as some of the, the issues that they present? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd agree completely with, with James's points there. And, and, and I think something else that's, that's quite important is the fact that what we're talking about here in general in terms of diorama model making and so on you know it's it, it's ultimately it's it's a visual practice it's a visual hobby um and this is an incredibly visual period in history it's it's, it's probably the last real visual period of warfare if you if, if you look at 1815 you've got so many different nationalities so many different contingents represented on that on that battlefield on the 18th of june and to a certain degree it's 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 a kind of a model maker's paradise you've you've got Scottish Highlanders, you've got Brunswick Khazars, you've got French Old Guardsmen, there are so many different costumes and regimental distinctions and so on. And I think that really lends itself to, to trying to recreate that and trying to, to pay tribute to it in miniature. Um, if, if, if you move on from 1815, kind of into the 19th century, certainly into the 20th century, you, you see a growing trajectory towards, towards uniformity, towards drabness and so on. So, so perhaps it is that last visual spectacle in, in, in warfare terms. Is there a, a temptation to just sort of be inspired by the Lady Butler paintings and just think, oh, but to re recreate that in a, in a three-dimensional form? I think there probably is to some degree. I mean, of course, the reality was that, well, two really important points. First of all, this is the fag end of the Napoleonic Wars and the, the sort of um, the great age of dressing up was over. You know, uh, the French had, had run out of money, didn't have any time. And this was a fairly ragtag army that arrived on the field of Waterloo from, from the French perspective. And secondly, they were all, whichever side they were on, covered from head to foot in mud. Um, so, you know, I, I think it was probably a much darker looking spectacle than perhaps we imagine. And, you know, no, whether it was red or blue, the, the predominant color was probably brown. <laughs> We, we might get onto that in a moment in terms of the, the challenges when it comes to painting this. And there's, there's a whole discussion, isn't there, about realism when it comes to these armies. And, and that's a challenge in itself. I mean, as I say, we will discuss this, but that, that's a really important point here about the fact that actually these armies didn't look like a Lady Butler painting. And as you say, being covered head to toe in mud is probably the, the great uniformity um, amongst the, these men. Let's talk about this specific project. I, I term it the Great Waterloo Diorama because I have high hopes that this is going to be the definitive one. But what's the thinking been behind this one? And what are you hoping to achieve through it? Well, to go back to your earlier comment about the, the other dioramas, that, I mean, they have um, many, many advantages. Sibbon, of course, there, there are not just, there's not just one Sibbon diorama, there are two. And um, the famous one in London is absolutely microscopic. And actually, I think in some ways it's a bit of an anticlimax because A, you can't see it all the way around. B, it's quite dark. It has to be dark in order to protect it. 
and see its uh, its size is is you know really quite quite testing um, to anyone who who needs to wear glasses. So um, you know that for those reasons it's it's not it's not perfect. But then of course there's the 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 the, the controversy about it, and we'll, we'll return to that. Um, well, perhaps I should just take it head on. I personally think people are uh, are unfair on Sibbon. I mean, you know, we live in an age where for the last two years it's been pretty hard to travel uh, because of COVID. Um, well, I mean, imagine trying to get around Europe and write to a load of people who you don't have email addresses for um, to find out what they thought when you don't speak French or German. I mean, I think he did a pretty remarkable job finding out as much as he did from the people that he that he was able to write to. I think even in this age, that would be quite difficult. So um, the fact that that not many Frenchmen wanted to talk, well, maybe that says more about you know a sense of French resentment at what took place than actually Sibbon. And secondly, the fact that um, you know he he took an Anglophone view. Well, I think he did actually try and reach um, in, into the into the Dutch, into the Prussian. Um, communities, but perhaps not as as deeply as we would have liked today. But I think that's a function of the times rather than of his particular instinct. And then the question of, of the removal of Prussians from the diorama. Well, you know, uh, as Churchill said, history will be kind to me because I intend to write it. And so, you know, as with Wellington, you know, he wasn't going to have his battle taken off him by someone else. And, you know, frankly, who can blame him? So um, I, I do think there's a slightly whipped up controversy by uh, modern historians who, you know, they, they need to write a revisionist narrative in order to sell their books. And I think the truth lies somewhere in between. But I fully accept that the diorama we can do today will have a better understanding of the battle than what he did. And, and that's the primary motivation. The second motivation is that, I, I mean, I like the Winchester model. It's been... Um, it's, it, it's been extensively cleaned um, and refurbished and it's great fun it, it's an entertainment but it's by no means ever and it was never intended as a piece of objective academic research it, it is a swirl of activity in fact it's a swirl of many activities because it, it tries to represent all the main events of the battlefield all at once so it, it just looks like a sort of massive I don't know, pitch invasion um, at a rugby match than, than an actual true um, representation of the battle. So for those reasons, I think it, it lacks something. There's also some, some great dioramas in Germany. Um, you know, the Germans really do have a long tradition of doing this stuff well. And, um, you know, for those who haven't seen uh, the, 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 the Kroben 1813 diorama, which is a, a part of the Leipzig battle, and that's well worth seeing. And there are others... Uh, of Waterloo as well. So the Germans really know how to do this. So quite a bit of my inspiration for getting this right comes from uh, the modern efforts of German diorama makers. And what made you actually want to do this? And then that's a question for both of you, you know, why for you, James, as the instigator behind this project, what made you want to kind of hit reset, if you like, and, and do this again, but from the sounds of it, sort of do it properly and incorporate a lot of the, the the latest research into it. So um, I think, like all three of us, I've had a long-standing interest and passion for for the period and for the battle. So that was the instigator. I, I got going on my own initially, and um, I suppose I got to about thirty thousand figures, which I think was not a bad effort. But I realised that um, you know I'm fifty eight now, and at the present rate of production, I have to live to be about two hundred and ten to to finish so that wasn't going to happen so 
I decided when I became a Waterloo Uncovered trustee to see what, you know, what could be done by way of synergy with, with the charity. And it was absolutely fantastic, really, because um, Mark Evans, the CEO, he said, well, why don't we just try and raise some of the supporters of the charity and see where we can get to? So um, we, we started with Waterloo Uncovered and then spread it into the sort of broader um, community of enthusiasts. I've now got 81 people helping me out and they, you know they live in america they live in canada they live in uk ireland as peter does in in europe in australia um you know it's a massive effort and what's just humbling is the 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 talent you know some of these people are remarkably fine painters and model makers far better than i am and it's just really lovely to have them on the team uh, my problem is trying to juggle 81 people you know, they'll, they'll say to me, you know, B Squadron, second cuirassier, um, you know, how many trumpeters were there? And, and I'll go, oh, I have no idea. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it's trying to keep up with the sort of volume of questions um, is, is quite difficult. But, you know, it's great. And what we'll come on to what's been done so far. Um, but it's been a really terrific team effort. Peter, what about you? Yeah, so for, for my part, um, I've, I've been a volunteer with Waterloo Uncovered for the last couple of years now, and, and obviously in, in my own time, have always been a very passionate war gamer and, and model painter and so on. So back, I suppose, in the, in the, in the spring, early summer of 2020, when, when this opportunity first arose, when there was first a conversation about putting together a, a painting team really drawn from, from the wider Waterloo Uncovered community, um, I, I jumped at the chance to, to, to help coordinate this and run this. Um, so we, we put together that initial painting team of about seven people, um, the vast majority of whom were, were either veterans or, or else uh, were serving military personnel drawn from that kind of Waterloo Uncovered background. Um, and we, we got to work on our first unit, which was a battalion of Prussian Landwehr for the Plants Noir section of the diorama. And something that was really, you know, fitting about that was, was first and foremost, to have that veteran and that serving personnel involvement, that, that's really at the heart of, of what Waterloo Uncovered is about. And also the multinational aspect of it as well. We, we had, you know, painters, even on that small, relatively small team of seven people the first time around, we had painters from the UK, from Ireland, from France, from the Netherlands. Um, and that's just so appropriate in, in the context of Waterloo. I think it's, it's, it's a multinational episode it's it's a european battle so it was really lovely to have that reflected on a on a much smaller scale in in that team what, what peter's done um most, most of the, the people contributing have taken on a whole unit so there's a sort of consistency in what they do so what peter's doing is coordinating smaller contributions and that's a really hard thing to pull off because you get different styles you get people some of whom have never painted anything before and what was so fantastic was when this first battalion, he's now doing a different battalion, but when the first one arrived, it was like the same person had done it. And I don't know how much effort Peter had had to sort of put into just standardizing everything, but he'd really pulled off, you know, uh, in terms of colors and making sure they all painted with the same paints and same style. It was a great effort. And, um, you know, that, that doesn't come easy. So I'm really grateful to him, to Peter and his team for, for, for managing that. I think that's very nicely done. I've been uh, having discussions with Peter myself about uh, how he's done it and, and um, whether or not a certain rank amateur like myself would be any use to the team. Um, I'm convinced that the answer to that is no, but Peter's decided to be very kind and indulge me. Um, so 
we'll see how that turns out at stage you, you are our latest recruit yeah yeah um, you have me painting frenchman though i believe which is gonna be that's a turn yes. up for the books uh not sure i'm gonna be able to live that one down on twitter i want to just dwell a little bit on waterloo uncovered's involvement because uh, and we'll talk more about the charity which i absolutely adore um in terms of what it's seeking to do on many levels um but this is a really interesting alternative type of therapy isn't it um and you know in the past i've um had the the pleasure of interviewing Stuart eve about the archaeological dimension of that therapy and the way in which they provide wider support around that but this is a different routine is this something that was sort of forced upon the charity in part because of lockdown and because that cancelled so many plans in terms of going out to uh, Waterloo or was this something that was just in the pipeline already as you know let's let's try an alternative means of supporting these veterans I think it preceded Covid actually um, but uh, it, it undoubtedly was it was not lost on any of us that there is a therapeutic benefit to to this because you know, it, it, it's calming, it's peaceful. You can sit there, listen to the radio or listen to your podcast, Zach. And, um, you know, you can, uh, <laughs> you, you can um, essentially, you know, just the re a repetitive, pleasing activity like this can be really good for people's souls, I think. So I do think it has that huge benefit. Um, and I'd strongly encourage anyone listening to this who, who would like to take part and, you know, can see the value of that to, to join in. We can always take more, I mean, my little head will explode with having to think about more units and more emails, but you know, we, we, we can always accommodate more help in this, in this particular project. Absolutely, and um, thank you for the plug there. That is hugely appreciated. Uh, but what I would say is if a rank amateur like myself is welcome on the team, then uh, there are some very skilled painters out there on the miniatures uh, circuit who would do a beautiful job um, so we will we will make sure that there are details in terms of how people can get involved which are going to be posted not only at the end of this episode we're going to have a so if you're if you want those details now fast forward right to the end please do come back to listen to the rest of the interview um, but also there will be links in the description folks that you can find out more about how you get involved I want to talk about research and sort of nitty-gritty details because I've really liked how there's been a talk about the multinational element already within this and that you know we're not just going for that classic British versus French that sort of redactive almost characterization of Waterloo as Agincourt round two or, or something bizarre and hugely frustrating like that but there's a lot of new research that's gone into this and there are still competing opinions and and disagreements as is historians way you know if we weren't arguing about something we'd be out of a job so how do you go about incorporating that research? Because there's a sifting process that's got to be done there. You've got to make a judgment on actually on balance. I think X is probably right and Y is probably wrong. So talk me through how you're doing that. So the first thing is that this is a snapshot um, and not a prolonged narrative. So the, the snapshot is 1800 hours on the evening of the 18th of June. And we've chosen that moment, uh, which is actually... Uh, later than the second Sibbon diorama at Leeds, which is about the, the uh, Dernon's attack onto the to Picton's division and the cavalry counterattack. And it's earlier than the second, uh, than the first 
diorama in the National Army Museum, which is the, the attack of the old guard, so you know, an hour or two later. So this is this is um, chosen because it's it's really the optimum action moment at Waterloo. You've got uh, the from from sort of around this great arc of fighting, you you've got the action at, at Hougoumont, uh, you've got the uh, French cavalry charges um, turning into a sort of combined arms effort with horse artillery and some skirmishers coming in to support the cavalry. You've got the the the, the fall of La Haye Saint. You've got Derlon's corps. Uh, really in a, in a long extended um, contact engagement with, with um, the British left. Uh, you've got the fall of, well, the attack onto Papalot because although General Dirac claims to have captured it, the, the evidence probably suggests he didn't. Um, he got into the garden, but not into the farm of Papalot. And then all the way down uh, the, the French right flank, um, you know, between Zeton's corps and then Bulo's corps, uh, into uh, into Plans Noir and the various assaults onto Plans Noir, and of course the various parts of the French army fed into into the fight in Plans Noir with um, the, the the Lobos Corps initially, then the Young Guard, and then uh, elements of the Old Guard. So uh, it's a snapshot. And what's really interesting is that even some of the most expert historians on this, and we're talking to people like Andrew Field. Um, uh, and Gareth, uh, you know, that they they don't actually know um, where particular units are. Almost impossible to say. There is no evidence for, you know, the exact locations of the battalions of the Young Guard in in Plans Noir. You, you know, one just has to, at some point to take some some militarily uh, tactically sensible judgments. And of course, I mean that's where I find it really interesting from my perspective as an ex-soldier. You know, uh, just how do you feed in so many troops into such a small area? Now, it's fine when you're in the open field system, but when you're into, you know, um, a, a, a very tight battle space like Plansois, how, how do how do you cope with that? How do you fight up the, the high road, uh, you know, on the southern flank of Plansois? Um, how do you how do you manage to fit these troops in? What happens to echelons? You know, as one one brigade is is sort of expended and falls back and then another one comes through it, it creates tactical problems that you need to solve on the diorama and, and sometimes history can only take you so far at some point you just have to come to a judgment and peter in terms of we talked about you know uniforms and and things like um, you know how many buglers are, are in a, a particular unit and questions like that and there is a lot of work out there um, being produced in terms of, you know, uniforms of X core or, or uniforms of Y core, or um, there are those great Osprey books, aren't there, which are beautifully visual. How do you go about trying to inverted commas get it right? Because there will always be those people who turn around and say, "Ah, oh, yes, but you know, twenty third regiment had facings that were, you know, mauve. I mean, they weren't, but you know." Uh, I'm being facetious, but you're always going to have people like that. So how do you go about addressing that, especially when you've got so many of these figures um, that need to be painted? I mean, James has talked about how he produced 30,000. You've got hundreds of thousands more to produce. How do you go about resolving those issues? Yeah, it's it's uh, firstly, I, I agree completely with, with, with what James had said earlier on, that I, I think there probably is this push and pull thing between 
pouring over these these gorgeous color plates in an osprey or whatever and and understanding the the the, the slightly more sober reality that, that that on the day it probably is a case of people who are soaked through who haven't slept properly who've effectively been sleeping rough for several days who are plastered with mud and and all the rest of it and, and maybe I suppose maybe it's it's trying to steer a middle ground through that. Um, I mean, as, as as James had mentioned, one of the one of the definite challenges of coordinating a unit of painters as opposed to a single person sitting down and, and painting a, a battery of artillery or, or a battalion or whatever is is that question of of consistency. That that that's a kind of an interesting challenge, um, which, which which cropped up the first time around. So even though the approach that we had tried to take really from day one of the project was, was was to have consistency at the heart of it. So making sure, for instance, that everybody had the same equipment, the same brushes, the same set of paints, the same painting guide for their Prussian infantrymen and so on. The reality of it is is, is, is inevitably going, going to be, and it's, it's, it's nothing to do with the quality of painting, with people being better or worse painters or anything like that. It's it's just that people have their own individual quirks. And, and, and so what it means, as, as James has kind of alluded to there, is that you'll end up with uh, several slightly different batches of figures and, and 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 there's a challenge to kind of knit them together to, to to make them look cohesive and so on another kind of a challenge which which i found quite interesting is is maybe more of a, a philosophical challenge as a as, as a hobbyist or as a painter or whatever prior to, to to coming to this project my conception of of a napoleonic infantry battalion a miniature was maybe 25 to 30 28 mil figures which you can painstakingly slave away over for for months at a time and use three or four different layers for each color and all the rest of it and that doesn't work for a project like this it just doesn't work even even in the context of painting a single unit like a battalion i mean that that, that prussian landwehr battalion was over over 400 strong um this french battalion that we're now embarking on is is about 550 figures strong so it it, it, it it just requires a completely different way of thinking. It's, 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 it's about getting it right, getting it to, to a decent overall standard, but probably above all else, focusing on the units, focusing on the hundreds rather than the, 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 the dozens. So I think it requires a, I think it requires a different way of thinking, all right. I agree. Um, um, I think that the other thing is that it needs, um, the, the quality is in the, the neatness of the painting. Um, the thing that we really can't cope with, we can cope with simplicity, that's fine, because you can always enhance simplicity. I mean, if someone, you know, can't, can't do, you know, uh, the piping on, on the red cuff of a, of a French infantry um, tunic, that's fine. But if, if, they, if the painting is messy, then that is a wholesale repaint. Um, but, and that's just actually more trouble than it's worth. So, you know, it, it is about people who, who have attention to quality probably over attention to detail. We can do the detail and we have, you know, because some figures get, you know, added to by others. So we can bring it up to the same standard. And that's, that's um, you know, what Peter's done so brilliantly in, in his particular battalion. I was going to ask about that, actually. What is that process of sort of achieving that uniformity? Because you, you've got to kind of do that fine tuning aspect. Just give us a sense of what's involved in that. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, it's done at different levels. I mean, so Peter's, you know, bringing his battalion together and, and he, I've no idea how much pain he's gone through to get it to me, but I, I bet he has. Um, but, uh, you know, when it reaches me, I, my job is um, it, to, to have that sort of quality control aspect to it and to just bring things to a standard. Um, so uh, that that's a big part of it. I mean, there are some of the really basic facts, like, you know, you can't put a figure onto a, a diorama 
and have the base showing. Um, so, you know, the, the, I actually, and, and if you can't put, you can't hide a base on a road. Um, so you actually need to chop them off the base and glue them directly onto the, to the, to the road. So there's a huge amount of, you know, altering of normal figures to remove bases and make them fit for a diorama, uh, which is quite a time consuming process in its own right. So all that has to be done. But the other thing I'd point out is just going back to the point about scale, you know, um, people tend to think of, you know, guns like they're individual things with four men or something, but a, a full, you know, a full battery of eight guns, uh, each gun having, you know, maybe 10 crew, um, each each gun having a limber, you know, with six horses and each each one having two caissons, each of six horses. So, um, you know, by the time you get to a full battery, it's actually taking up a much larger area than a, than a full battalion of infantry. Um, and how do you fit all that in onto a battlefield, particularly when you know, nobody in their right mind is going to stand in front of a, of a battery that's unlimbered and firing? So, you know, th there must, by definition, be huge areas with nothing in it because th that's where the guns are. And um, so, you know, all those sort of decisions are, are quite complicated to make and to get right. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Let's talk about scale in, in, in this, uh, and not only in terms of you know, physical height of figures, but also in terms of numbers involved. I gather that the idea is one-to-one -one here, i.e., every figure represents one person on the battlefield is that right that's correct so the, the scale is um 20 millimeter or one in 72 actually the two terms are used synonymously but actually in, in in strictly mathematical terms they're not quite the same but but they're good enough and it, you tend to talk about plastic figures being one in 72 and you talk about metal figures being 20 millimeters but they the reason for the choice of that scale is that 25, 28 mil figures are just enormous and would require just a huge area. As it is, this diorama will take up a space roughly the size of a tennis court. And so if you went with 28 mil, you would have something, you know, not, not quite a football pitch, but heading that way. 15 mil would have been the alternative, but there are no plastic figures in 15 millimetre that I know of anyway. Um, and therefore, 20 mil is a nice compromise because you can buy both metal and plastic, you get lots of variety of scale and, uh, uh, not, not, sorry, not of scale, but of, of pose. And so that's why we've, we've gone with it. But yes, it is a one-for-one -one diorama that we're creating here. 
which creates you know what is one to one what the official strength of those units at the, on on the 14th of june of course wasn't what they were at by the time they fought at Lini and Catrebra. um and so you know one has to make some judgments about you know at the true strength of the battalion or, or regiment by the time it got to the field of waterloo this is fascinating um it's getting your head around the fact that you are painting one figure for every single person at Waterloo is just mind-blowing. Um, there are so many questions I've got about the, the practicalities of this. The first one I want to dwell on is, is landscape. How are you going about recreating the landscape? Because it's all very well if you're just creating a, a fictional little scene. You can sculpt your own landscape and you haven't got to be particularly careful because you're not creating something that's real. You are. So how have you gone about that process of recreating it? You've got to think about buildings as well. And the, we've talked in previous episodes on this um, Wargaming series about the challenge of getting buildings to a correct scale. So talk me through how that's being resolved. Well, I suppose you know, I'm not a Wargamer, but I assume for Wargames it is a problem because the buildings will be massively outsized for, um, and therefore you need to downsize them. And I, I would imagine that for... A 25 millimeter war game you'd use a 50 millimeter building which would look odd in terms of the human eye but would be right for the for the game that that does that's not necessary in this because you know we've got one for one and therefore the the buildings can be true to the scale uh in fact my father makes all the buildings he's a very talented model maker and we have in fact focused on the on the the bits of the diorama with buildings so we've done Hougamont, uh la Haye saint papalotte Plans Noir, uh, La Belle Alliance. He's just made uh, Mont Saint Jean Farm, and he's you know he's I, I think he's you know outstanding at this. Um, he's eighty three, and still going strong. So um, you know he's pretty remarkable at making the actual buildings, um, and, and there's also a consistency to what he does. So you know he I can't remember how many buildings he's got in Plans Noir, but there's sort of forty plus in there. Um, it's a lot of buildings. Um, and you don't need different people making them. So there's a nice, there's a nice consistency to the fact he's made them all um, and handmade them all. Um, so in terms of the actual diorama, well, of course, we have fantastic knowledge as to what um, the battlefield looked like because Sibbon, as well as being an outstanding model maker, was an outstanding cartographer and took some really careful measurements. But there is a problem with his diorama insofar as it was so small that he um, accentuated uh the relief so that it wouldn't look like a sort of flat um you know piece of paper and so he du he doubled the relief everything is a greatly exaggerated steepness of slope on his diorama so because our model is so much bigger um we're, we've gone back to to a normal height which does tend to flatten things out it is a bit like flying over countryside in an airplane you can't quite pick out the the sort of gentle, subtle hills as, as much as if you were on the ground. Um, so that, that's one aspect of it. The next bit that really matters is, you know, just size. You know, and the big unresolved problem with this diorama is, is its eventual location. You know, we, we need a genuinely large place because if you think it's going to be the size of a tennis court, that's its actual dimensions. But then if you need to walk around it, it needs to be, have a building that's outside of that. So, so far, we've focused, as I said, on those those areas with buildings. The exhibition that took place in October at the National Army Museum, which many people visited, um, you know, was a, in their big atrium. But even that is now far too small for 
what's coming next. Um, so we we have to, uh, in a sense, divide the model up and each section of the model is 120 centimeters by 90. Um, each section has its own box. There's a massive logistical exercise in that because the, 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 the principal enemy here is not the French or the British or the Prussians. The principal enemy is dust, light and heat and damp. So uh, trying to keep this thing uh, pristine means each section has its own box. And that's a, a big exercise in protecting it when it's not out on display. I was going to ask a bit more about the display element as well. What's the, the hope longer term? Because if it's the size of a tennis court, you've got a massive headache when you eventually want to get this you know, properly on display as, as a completed entity in terms of, great, if you're, you're standing by the Hougoumont section, but you know, you're going to have La Haysant slap bang in the, in the middle. So how are you going to, so, or what is the hope in terms of enabling people to see the stunning detail that you're putting into all of this, when a lot of the, the figures are actually going to be sort of in the middle, you know, where the net is, if you like, or, of your tennis court, and people aren't going to be able to see that from the sidelines? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the key takeaways from, from this diorama is that people view the battle as a series of acts, you know, Derlon's attack, Hougamont, the, the cavalry charges, La Haye Saint, Plonsoir, etc. And, and it's a very, it's a bit like the film of Waterloo. It's a series of acts. Um, in reality, of course, it was a, an arc of almost continual fighting all the way around. So if you, if you look, if you imagine it as a sort of almost like a sort of boomerang from Hougamont all the way around to Plonsoir, you, you can, you can visualise how, how the diorama doesn't need to be a square. So although it will take up the space of a tennis court, the intention is to, in fact, uh, make use of the areas that um, pretty much nothing happened and hollow those out and be able to walk right into it. So there will be, the intention is to build walkways right in so you can get right into the middle. You're not in some way looking through a pair of binoculars at 20 meters distance. So all that work that Peter and others have put in isn't, isn't going to be wasted. Uh, you are actually going to get up close to it. I'm curious, I mean, this is fantastic. Um, I, I, the best descriptions of Waterloo, the best histories of Waterloo, in my opinion, are the ones that manage to pull together that kind of continuous element and are able to take you from what's happening at Hougoumont, flick you across to Plants Noir and so on. Um, so I, I'm delighted that this is being done in the way it is because that that's exactly how, to me, if you're going to do this, this, this should have been done. Um, I want to talk about horror stories within this, uh, so if, if I may, and feel free to actually say, no, I don't want to share any of those. Um, but there must have been moments when something went horrifically wrong um, or you had somebody sort of turn around and say, so, yeah, you sent me a guide on how to paint these. But actually, I decided that... Um, they looked much better if I put bloodstains all over the bayonets. So I've just done that. Do you get any of these sort of these horrendous moments where, you know, somebody drops a box or where somebody turns around and they've gone completely rogue? Are there any kind of stories like that that you want to share? So, I mean, I've got one I'll tell against myself. I'd finished the, um, you know, the, the 52nd um, Light Infantry, the biggest British battalion in Waterloo, so big, in fact, that it was divided into two squares um, 
because it really really enough troops in that regiment to to be two battalions um and um i i i give the it a spray matte varnish to protect the figures and um I had not appreciated that if you if you you don't want to spray that stuff inside, so you take it outside. And it was a cold, frosty morning, and um, I hadn't appreciated that if you spray matte varnish outside on a cold, frosty morning, you immediately capture the the water particles in the air, and you give your battalion a grey uh, mist. <laughs> so uh, that was a, a, a don't repeat that a mistake. Um, I mean, fortunately, I've been able to recover it, but uh, it was a it was a little down disheartening to have, you know, a battalion of uh, nearly a thousand men in that way. But anyway, we're over that. Um, the second one is a, a really nice guy, lovely guy, very keen American who had never painted Napoleonic figures before. He offered to do some cuirassier, and um, he found a picture of the uh, aforementioned cuirassier and sent them to me, full of enthusiasm, and I felt so. I felt so sorry for him, but also disappointed by what arrived, which was that he had painted the entire unit as trumpeters. Um, so uh, they all wore green coats um, and had white um, horsehair plumes. Um, and it was certainly a sight, but it was not quite what I was after. So we had to sort of gently revisit on that front. But there we go. Two, two incidents that I can mention. Wow. Poor guy. Um, yeah, my, my heart goes out to you on both counts, actually. Uh, they are, those are not easy situations to resolve, either of them. Peter, what about you? No, thankfully, I, 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 I think things were things were plain or sailing. I think as, as dramatic as it got with our first unit was, was probably just packaging them up. That was weirdly challenging at the very, very end. Once everyone had sent their the figures back in and they were all together, I, I, I remember sitting here and in, 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 at the table here one evening putting them all together to send them back over to James and and there is suddenly this moment of anxiety where, where you think what's going to happen to these crossing the Irish Sea will they make it or or rather will they make it in one piece but thankfully they they, they did there was no drama in the end. Let me ask um, one final question before we deal with sort of the nitty-gritty um, end of the episode. Casualties. Now this is a, a difficult kind of moral dilemma isn't it because it goes without saying that there would have been we know that there were tens of thousands of casualties as a result of this battle but how do you include them and how do you include them sensitively um there aren't any obvious solutions to that but i'm curious about how you folks have kind of discussed that and what your thoughts are and how you're going to address that i think you you have to confront it head on and be historically accurate and I'm just not willing to have a diorama that's kind of airbrushed. You know, the, the, the fact this is a brutal, um, horrible event. You know, I, I actually think that, that there is a bit of a problem with the sort of glorification of, of you know, military history and wargaming that, that sort of doesn't in any way recognise this reality. Um, and I think Waterloo Uncovered does a brilliant job of, of taking that head on. You know, it's, it's work at Mont Saint-Jean has been great. I also think that, you know, um, the role of women at Waterloo is um, not, not particularly well understood, and, and, but their part really is, uh, in, on the French side, is um, Cantigny and um, helping out with the wounded and on the British side is, you know, really important. So 
I think it kind of brings to life that aspect of um, of the battle. So I think you really do need to to sort of show that. And you know, I'm very particular about making sure that the the the, the, the regulation numbers of ambulances, the regulation numbers of um, medics are present, and that the casualties do reflect what took place. I mean, but it is grim in some ways. I mean, I, we go the you know the modern technology allows for 3D printing. There's a great new company in Sweden, I think they're based, uh, called Spira, that make the most wonderful 3D printed figures, and they can be very new and, and, and novel. The problem is that they didn't have any wounded horses, and they asked me to search the internet for pictures of wounded horses. It's actually quite unpleasant. It's quite harrowing. And if you care about animals or people, you, you don't like looking that stuff up online to send a picture to someone. And it does remind you that this is not a game. This is, you know, real reality. You know, tens of thousands of people lost their lives and were wounded at Waterloo. So I think one has to pay one's respect to that, that truth. I think people are going to have a lot of love for this project. I really do. The, the way in which you're approaching it, the, the centrality of, of the history, the, the sense that has gone into and the careful thought that's gone into putting it all together. I've got one amusing question before we start talking about how people can get involved and, and the scale of things like costs and so on. You've got three individuals, three figures in this that everyone is going to want to paint and they're going to want the bragging rights for. And I am, of course, talking about Wellington, Blucher and Napoleon. Who's done them? And has there been a bum fight in the office about who's going to do this? <laughs> So they are, they are all done. Um, and um, I, I probably have about 20 Napoleons, you know, talk about the men in black. These are the men in grey. I mean, there's, there's a whole load of these characters in a carriage, on a chair, on a horse, hand in, in uh, waistcoat pocket, hands behind back, hat off, hat on, you know, great coat on, green coat on. You know, it's all there. So there can only be one of them on the battlefield. So um, the truth of the matter is that he's uh, on Marengo, uh, standing in front of uh, La Belle Alliance, surrounded by his staff. But behind are the carriages that came forward. And we know that from the account of one of his carriage drivers that three of the, of the 12 carriages in the Imperial headquarters came forward uh, by six o'clock to La Belle Alliance. And uh, two of them were captured. Um, one ended up in in, uh, uh, in Madame Tussauds and burnt in the fire of, uh, I think, 1911. And the other one is still extant and in, at Malmaison. Um, but uh, I, have, I have to admit there is a hidden Napoleon inside uh, the front uh, Berlin. Um, but no one's going to know that apart from us three and the listeners of your podcast. Yeah, I was going to say, and the uh, 1,000 or so people who, who listen to these yeah. episodes. Um, Wow, 20 Napoleons. Surely one is bad enough. 20 just sounds yeah. horrific. But they're not on the field. They're not on the field. They sit in reserve. They're on the, they're on the, you know, they're they're on the bench waiting for the call-up. Ready for the moment. I'm just imagining now Napoleon arguing with himself, but I don't know if he would argue with himself because he was such a narcissist. See Ed Coss's paper for more on that. Um, that sounds brilliant. Who did Wellington? Just because somebody out there is going to be sitting there sulking, going, you know, I wanted to do Wellington, it's not fair. Yeah, so there's a, there's a really great um, dioramist in Germany called Thomas Mischak who's been incredibly supportive of the project. And he has a friend 
who uh, contributed four wonderful little vignettes. So uh, Wellington has, has come in from there. And then uh, Blücher um, is, uh, everyone's getting to paint someone from a different nationality. So I paint the Frenchman, um, the German paints the Brit, and the Dutchman, uh, Andre Delvert, who's contributed a huge part of this project. He's, you know, he's just an absolutely amazing guy. So he has done Blücher. Fantastic. So there you go, folks. Don't now sit there and sulk about the fact that you aren't going to be the one who's asked to paint Wellington or Blucher or Napoleon. They are three of they are three of the least colourful characters on the battlefield, of course, because you know you got you got these sort of dark colours, greys and blues. They're not they're not the most exciting of uniforms. This is absolutely true. I want people to get involved. I really want people to support this. Um, the costs, they must be astronomical. A set of these figures, it isn't going to break your piggy bank if you're buying, you know, a, a single kit of, let's say, 20 figures. But when you're doing a one-to-one, it must be an astronomical cost. So give people a sense of the costs involved, the paints, the brushes, the postage, and so on, and the sort of ballpark figures. And then crucially, how can people, first of all, support this um, in, in a financial sense, but also from a practical sense, because time is is the big issue here, right? There's so many figures to paint. How can people get involved? Yeah, so perhaps I could take the time thing first. I mean, just to give a sense of the stages of this. Um, stage one is now complete, and that's um, the, the, the various buildings, and that's that was done in October. Stage two is the ca French cavalry attacks onto the squares, and we're going for the summer of 2023. And then stage four, uh, will be the Grand Battery and Erlans Corps to, to the east of, of, the, um, of the main road. Uh, and then in stage five, we'll be joining it all up. So it's going to be happening over a series of years. So how, how can people be involved? Well, of course, many people who are interested in this have already made a sort of investment in terms of paints and brushes. So hopefully that's not too much of an issue. But if you aren't yet into this and you don't have any of the stuff, um, we do need people to, to be able to have buy their own brushes and paints and um, we can advise on where to get those but we're not in a position to provide those for figures we tend to be a, a kind of um, if, if you can buy them please do so but if you can't we have stuff in reserve ready to allocate the trouble with doing an allocation is you get what there is not what you want necessarily so um, if, if people can afford it they tend to, to to buy the figures themselves, and the other thing is I can't I can't be sending easily now with with Brexit figures abroad, particularly if they're metal because of just the sheer weight of it. So I tend to if people want to volunteer from other countries, ask them they do need to be able to source their own figures. Um, so that's the the way it goes. Basically, I I maintain a master spreadsheet. I know which units aren't allocated, and um, you know we take it from there. But um, there is still space for more. Lots of units are allocated. We've got 81 people involved with the program at the moment, about 15 who've done a unit, and that's probably their lot. But um, so it's pretty fantastic. But if there are more, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And how do they get in touch with you? Do they go via Peter or do they come direct to a, a website? How does it work? Um, so what, what I ask, please, if people could go to the Waterloo Uncovered website and then Mark Evans, the, the CEO of Waterloo Uncovered, sends them on from from that email address on that website to, to me 
Fantastic. Peter, um, I want to give you the opportunity to just make a, a pitch, well, in fact, both of you, um, James, in your posi position as, as trustee as well, just make a pitch for Waterloo Uncovered. Um, and it, it's another brilliant organisation that I really hope people can support um, in whatever way that they can. So just sort of make the pitch for Waterloo Uncovered because they are brilliant and I would love to see their work supported further. They, they, they are brilliant and, and they're very unique, I think, as a charity. So, so just on, on, on the assumption that there might be some people listening who, who either haven't heard of Waterloo Uncovered before or, or only have a vague idea. Broadly speaking, the, the, the charity works on two main headings, one of which is, is obviously carrying out archaeology on the battlefield of Waterloo itself in Belgium. That, that has now become an annual thing each, each July, with the exception, needless to say, of, of, of the last two years because of COVID. Um, and, and the charity has done and is continuing to do some really, really incredible work there in terms of increasing our understanding of, of the battle uh, and the battlefield itself. But just as importantly, and it's, it's kind of been a theme running through our, our, our discussion today is, is the work that it does um, with veterans and with serving military personnel. So, so in other words, with, with those who have been directly affected by military service and by conflict of, of a much more recent nature. Um, so at the heart of that is, is bringing people out to Waterloo, bringing participants out there and giving them the chance to actually get hands on and, and, and participate in that archaeology. But as well as that, it's, it's probably really important to say, again, especially in the context of, of the last two years we've just had, is, is that Waterloo Uncovered does an incredible amount of work all year round. It's, it's not just about that two weeks out in Belgium and so on. And in particular in 2020 and, and again in 2021, when it wasn't possible to, to do that, to pack the bags and the trowels and go over there, there has been a huge amount of remote and, and virtual activity taking place, of which our painting team is just one very, very small slice of that, that overall activity. So I really would, I mean, on, on the assumption that anyone listening to this is, is, is going to be a Napoleonic enthusiast, if, if you haven't come across Waterloo Uncovered before, I really would encourage people to, to head across to the website. It's, it's www.waterlooncovered.com. Have a look at the social media as well. Have a look at some of the videos on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, etc to get an idea about what the charity is up to and also to get an understanding of some of the ways that you can support that work in the future, including through donation. Absolutely, and it's worth saying that there's a, a great educational element as well that the, the charity is involved in. It's not just about supporting the veterans and doing the research, it's also about getting that information out there and bringing those fresh perspectives, which is genuinely brilliant to see and it's, it's a deeply, a deeply, deeply impressive operation. James, is there anything that you'd want to add to that on, on Waterloo Uncovered? No, I completely agree with Peter. Um, I think it's a fantastic little charity. Um, it just combines, you know, a deep sense of caring for ex-veterans with a passion for, for the archaeology and history of Waterloo. And I think we live in an age, you know, we're speaking at a moment of in, incredible uh, pain for Europe in the form of a war now in in March 2022, um, but we mustn't forget that lots of people have served in conflicts recently in Afghanistan or Iraq or earlier. And you know, sometimes the, the immediate pain of war gives way to a, a much more chronic and long-term set of issues. And Waterloo Uncovered is a very peaceful, you know, friendly, lovely way to bring veterans together and others in a community and to just have a, a great sense of pleasure and fun in studying something uh, such as the Battle of Waterloo. 
And James, can I also ask you to just say a, a few words about the Halo Trust, uh, an organization that must be run ragged right now with everything that's going on in Ukraine. Um, perhaps you could just give us a, a sense of what the Halo Trust seeks to do, um, what you're involved with and having to deal with right now, and again, how people can support the organization. Oh, that's so kind, Zach, thank you. So Halo is the world's old, oldest NGO dealing with the debris of war. Uh, we've been going for uh, over three decades. Um, we started in Afghanistan in 1988. Uh, we employ 10,500 people around the world in 28 countries. Um, Afghanistan is still our largest program. We have 2,500 people there. Um, our, our mission is really very straightforward. We save lives um, by clearing up landmines, bombs, and other munitions, uh, and we restore livelihoods. So once the land is cleared of landmines or other ordnance, you know, farms can start again. Uh, if in cities we work across the Middle East, um, shops can open up, buildings can be rebuilt. So um, we're in all the major sort of war zones you'd expect, Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Somalia, um, but we're in Ukraine as well. And I've got 430 people there now. Um, we set up there in 2016 to clear up the debris of the 2014 war. So we're out east in the Donbass and we've got 21 people in Mariupol. Um, you can imagine the appalling uh, situation there over the last four weeks. Um, and we've got the bulk of our program further north in Kramatorsk and in the rural area around there. Um, we're establishing a new program in the west of the country at Lviv. And of course, we, we hope and pray that Mr. Putin will um, leave and peace will come and uh, we will be there for the post-war clear-up. Of course, he may not, and you know the war may continue, uh, but with luck, there will be a free Ukraine in the west of the country in which we can operate. But right now, what are we doing? We're doing brisk education for millions of Ukrainian children and civilians. Uh, we're doing survey. Um, so you know, for, for, for humanitarian corridors, absolutely essential to make sure that there are no landmines or other ordnance on those roads. Um, we, we've got a lot of people who are paramedics, so we're able to assist with all of that. We can do route proving, um, and of course we can do explosive ordnance disposal. So it's a massive task for us at the moment. Um, we've been overwhelmed by support from the British public and from around the world. So if anyone is able to help Halo, uh, we'd be most grateful. Folks, check the description below this episode it, you'll be listening to it um on apple Podcasts or wherever it is there is a descriptor for every episode go and have a look at the details of that there's a one-line summary of what the episode's about and then below that there will be links we will have links to the halo trust we will have links to waterloo uncovered so that you can get involved and support these brilliant organizations james peter it's been a fascinating conversation i've absolutely loved it thank you so much for wrapping up wargaming month for us here on the napoleon assist Thank you, Zach. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Before you go, folks, all the usual things. Remember to like and subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. A huge thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters. It is their support that keeps this podcast going. If you're interested in contributing to the show, you can find out more from the link in the description. Prices start from £1 a month, and you get all kinds of perks from discount codes on... Um, 
pen and sword books which means you actually quite rapidly end up regaining some of the money that you invest in the show all the way through to voting rights shout outs in episodes and even one-to-one meetings with me if a regular subscription isn't your thing which believe me i completely understand you can leave one-off tips via ko-fi again the link is in the description and all the money gets reinvested into producing more content further down the line and i have a big project in mind involving footage from battlefields that could potentially be uh, a really engaging exciting project if i can bring the money together to make it happen a big thank you as ever to my emperor level patrons mark stoos jc kaiser and todd and led campbell my marshal patrons matt bone and marcus cribb my commander patrons john haynes Gerr brown liam telfer jane davis bob burnham andy meekin and michael guest my mentioned in dispatches plus patron noah fink and my mentioned in dispatches patrons miles reedy alexandra leon alistair campbell greve beatrice de graf brendan teeling colin fieldhouse ed Coss, bruins girl gareth copeland jeff maple hugh brennan indiana fats james bevan jim deary jim getz josh keeney lucy tatner lynn dawson mark dewhurst mark anscombe rob griffith Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Cothlin, Mark Trowbridge, and Stephen Coulson. The Napoleon Assist will be back very soon. Take care, folks, and as always, thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.